The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Ocean River Shields of Achilles. This is episode 15, and my guests today are Sherman's Lagoon cartoonist, Jim Tooney. Toomey. Hi, Jim. Uh, Seaweed Rebel and president of the Blue Frontier Campaign, David Helvarg. Hey, Rob. Hi, David. And Ocean Champions Executive Director, Mike Dunmire. Hey, Rob. Hi, Mike. We're going to start with Jim. Um, Jim Toomey, for the past uh, 17 years, has been writing and drawing the daily comic strip, Sherman's Lagoon. And this is syndicated to over 250 newspapers in North America, including the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Toronto Star. It also appears in over 30 foreign countries, in French, Portuguese, Spanish, Norwegian, and Swedish. Uh, Jim has completed his 16th book, Confessions of a Swinging Single Sea Turtle. Uh, So... Jim, tell us about how um, you combine your, your passions of art and the sea, uh, and you mix humor and marine biology to create, you know, uh, ocean, uh, ocean conservation issues, and, um, you know, how you started with this shark named Sherman. Sure, sure. Woo, 17 years. Has it been that long? Boy, I, uh, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, I started off, um, you know, as a little kid. Um, I grew up uh, sort of... Um, I think we're where uh, Mike is right now in Alexandria, Virginia, as a matter of fact, where they're getting four feet of snow. <laughs> and uh, we used to take these family trips to the beach. And, um, uh, you know, I, I used to spend a lot of time, like any kid, playing on the beach, but also uh, a little fishing and hanging out on the pier and so forth. And that's when I had a lot of formative experiences about uh, just looking at ocean animals. I, I remember a shark, a large shark, being hauled up on the pier um, at that time and, uh, you know, different kinds of... Uh, um, Different other kinds of ocean fish there on the Chesapeake Bay, so um, they were really uh, they really made an impact on me as, as a kid. I was maybe nine or ten years old at that point. I started drawing them and reading about them and so forth. Um, and uh, the shark in particular really made me um, made me fascinated. So uh, I found out more about sharks and uh, read books about sharks. And uh, uh, then Jaws came out, and uh, boy, that was a that was a big moment in my life. Um, I was. Probably the only kid in the theater rooting for the shark. Um, Yay! It just yeah, it was uh, it was great, and um, so I uh, you know I went on uh, to lead a normal life, so to speak, and uh, went on to college, became an engineer, and uh, out of college, um, I sort of took up this 
this hobby of political cartooning, which I actually started in college um, for the college newspaper. And uh, I lasted as a political cartoonist for uh, about a couple of years, but I really wasn't um, all that satisfied with it. Um, I was doing a lot of local political stuff, and uh, what I really wanted was a, a regular strip. Um, and that's when it occurred to me that, you know, I was taking a look at the, in the funny pages, and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of boys and girls and dogs and cats and uh, things like that, but there's really no, there's no fish, and there's really n- nothing close to my favorite animal, which was the shark. So I created this strip that centered around um, this great white shark, and I just kind of picked the most charismatic fish in the ocean, in my opinion, uh, the one, you know, with a lot of folklore attached to it, a lot of, I guess, preconceptions that people have about um, sharks and great white sharks in particular. And when you create something like a comic strip or a, a novel or a movie or whatever, you, you really build uh, the plot around characters. Your, your characters are really what drives the, the action and the humor and so forth. So uh, for me, you know, the, the shark was, was an essential element of an undersea strip, kind of the same way that a sheriff or a bad guy would be the essential element of a Western. You just had to have one in there. Um, and then after that, I just built uh, the cast around the shark. So I needed a good foil for Sherman. And I kind of went um, a little against the grain with with casting Sherman. In other words, I gave him kind of a, a goofy demeanor, um, more um, not a lot of thinking but a lot of doing, um, not the kind of uh, personality we associate with a shark. Um, well, Jim, let me interrupt for a second because sure. uh, that's part of the brilliance of your cartoon is is uh, what I found is that being a science teacher was the best way to communicate concepts was to take the familiar and make it strange. And then mm-hmm. in the process of making the strange familiar again, we learn how processes work. And you couldn't find a more strange in its threateningness of the white shark. And uh, you have turned it around and made it familiar to people. And that is a... A fabulous way to advance, you know, better understanding of sharks. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, you know, there were a couple of uh, formative comic strips. I, I read Peanuts as a kid, but when I was when I was older and I was developing this strip, uh, Gary Larson's Far Side was a big was a big influence. Um, yeah. And I really loved the way that he got inside the animals' heads and fought like the animals, and that was really a lot of the humor. And that's what I was trying to accomplish with Sherman's Lagoon, particularly the shark. I, I really had a lot of fun getting inside that shark's head. And, and like um, the, the cartoon strip you're talking about, um, you have taken it into more kind of uh, conservation messages and have really taught, you know, tackled some of the critical issues in ocean conservation. Uh, what comes, immediately comes to mind is shark finning. Yeah, thanks. I, I did that series back in uh, April of 08, and um, that one, um, I, had, I had done a few uh, here and there, but I'd never really done a full-on series with such a serious subject, and that was a hard one. It was a hard one to be funny, because I, I do have kind of this uh, this obligation to be funny to my readers, short, pithy, and funny. I don't I don't hit the mark every time, but I they, they at least expect me to try. So I can't go out and I can't beat a, you know, a conservation drum in a very serious manner. It's it's more like I got I, I, I kind of have to bait you into reading the message by promising a little bit of a laugh. Um, and starting off with such a serious topic like that, um, such a, you know, the cruel practice of you know, hauling live sharks out of the water and cutting their fins off and then throwing them back in the water live, um, that was tough. But um, again, I, I kind of drew on a lot of really um, other, other forms of comedy that took on really wacky 
um, tough things, you know, like mo- the Monty Pythons. Um, and I thought, well, okay, let's let's have Sherman get thin. That's the obvious thing. Oh, dear. Um, and then he goes to Shark Heaven, and then, uh, you know, I just get a little absurd with it. Um, so it was a lot of fun in the end. I, I miss that because I'm up in Boston where I don't um, get as much cartoons. I don't get your your series up here. Um, so fortunately, um, our man in Washington, Mike Dunmire, has kept me informed about your cartoon work. Um, Mike, um, how did you first um, encounter this? Or oh, we might have lost Mike. I'm sorry, I had uh, I had my phone muted, so oh, you didn't hear the, the blizzard thundering against my windows. Um, but uh, I started reading Sherman's Lagoon when they were printing in the Washington Post. They started on Sundays quite a few years ago and then moved it to uh, the, the Daily Strip as well. But uh, I've, I've moved into the marine conservation field about three, four years ago, but you know, well before that was just uh, loving this strip. I mean, they're, they're tremendous characters that, that Jim has built. It, it really is very, very funny. And, and like he says, you know, you... Uh, you get to come in, and he'll touch on on issues from time to time uh, that are very topical, like the shark finning. But in addition to that, you know, you can you can tune in and, and find out about uh, how to handle telemarketers and you know the challenges associated with wanton hermit crab nakedness. So there's, there's a <laughs> wide range of subject matter, and it's it's consistently very very funny. All important matters. In Being from Salem, Massachusetts, I was particularly taken by Hawthorne, the hermit crab. How did he come by that name? Well, um, uh, the all the characters are, are actually named after the streets of San Francisco, believe it or not. I, when I, I was living <laughs> in San Francisco when I developed this strip. So, um, and that particular street, Hawthorne Street, I think is named after Nathaniel Hawthorne, the, uh, the, the writer, author. So um, there is sort of a, an indirect connection to uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. So Fillmore is Fillmore Street, and I think that's named after President Lord Fillmore, I believe. And then Sherman Street, et cetera, et cetera. Megan's yeah. the only exception. Megan's actually named after the, the large uh, prehistoric shark, Megalodon. So That's appropriate. The the, this is the wife, right, of the, the female That's shark? Right. Exactly. The one who wears the pearls. <laughs> the one who wears the pearls. And, and I'm sure it was just coincidence. I remember the first time I met Jim and his wife, Valerie, to uh, ask him to do a blurb for my book. And uh noticed Valerie was wearing a string of pearls. So, uh, so, so <laughs> when, when I coincidence. When I saw Sherman was about to pup in the cartoon strip, I called Jim to congratulate him on his <laughs> upcoming child. <laughs> Any resemblance to real characters are, are, are strictly a coincidence. That's my that's my legal disclaimer. And he's sticking with it. Right. <laughs> well, I want to formally introduce David Helbarg as uh, president of the Blue uh, Frontier campaign. And you can learn more about David's work there at www.bluefront.org. And David's the author of uh, four books, Blue Frontier, The War Against the Greens, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, and Rescue Warriors. He's the editor of Ocean and Coastal Conservation Guide, organizer of several Blue Vision Summits for Ocean Activists, and winner of the Coastal Living Magazine's 2005 Leadership Award and the 2007 Herman Melville Literary Award. So it's close to Hawthorne. you got Melville there. Um, right. And... Um, it was a pleasure to have David on the... David joined us for Episode 3, uh, an earlier episode of Ocean River Shields of Achilles, titled Blue Visions and Seaweed Rebels. And he talked a bit about his work then, um, but he's been busy since then. And uh, um, 
I was going to ask you about, you know, your connections to Jim, but you sort of mentioned that. But, but Jim, oh, there's our, our break. So when we come back, uh, we'll learn more about Blue Frontiers and Jim Toomey's Sherman Lagoon. Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on How to Become a Host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Think of the world. 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show with your coach, Rick Carrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Carrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm Rob Moyer, and this is episode 15 of Ocean River Shields of Achilles. We're talking about uh, ocean conservation issues, and my guests today 
are Sherman Lagoon cartoonist Jim Toomey, Seaweed Rebel and president of the Blue Frontier Campaign David Helvarg, and Ocean Champions Executive Director Mike Dunmire. We were just uh, Dave Helvarg was just coming on on the uh, microphone here, and uh, Dave, you were um, going to give us a little history. You mentioned how you how you knew Jim. But uh, recently, you two have been working together about something, and uh, which led to this whole episode today. Uh, tell us more about um, what you're up to. Well, um, yeah, Jim, as I say, is a you know, aside from being a very funny cartoonist, he's also a dedicated, you know, marine conservationist. He's on the board of our group, Blue Frontier Campaign, and we've been working. Uh, we had last spring, as, as you know, there was a. Uh, Blue Vision Summit we had in Washington, D.C., right after the Obama administration came in to uh, promote the uh, sort of restore the blue in our red, white, and blue, promote uh, coastal and ocean protection. There have been two major uh, blue ribbon panels in 2003 and 2004. The Pew Commission, the official U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, had both put out reports uh, saying that the ecological collapse of our oceans is a threat to. Uh, not only our environment, but our economy and our security. And, and there are very different panels. One, the independent Pew panel, was headed by um, Leon Panetta, who's now head of the CIA. And the Bush-appointed uh, U.S. Ocean Commission was headed by uh, by uh, Admiral uh, Jim Watkins, a former chief of naval operations. And different makeups, similar conclusions, very little political action. We were hoping that with the new administration, we'd, we'd see a commitment to uh, really protecting and restoring our public seas, and we, we brought 400 ocean leaders to D.C. Uh, we had panels with uh, senators and Congress people, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of uh, Rhode Island and Representative Sam Farr from uh, California and, and other leaders, including uh, Nancy Sutley, who is the newly appointed head of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, was there. Uh, her background in L.A. was was clean air and climate, and I think it was kind of throwing her in the deep end, introducing her to 400 liters of uh, ocean uh, community. But it was it was a good uh, immersion because three months later, uh, President Obama appointed her to head up a uh, interagency ocean policy task force to uh, create uh, really a first uh, ocean policy for the United States. There were six public hearings in different parts of the country. Uh, David, let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Sutley is not exactly new to the ocean community, though, is she? She's a good. Why is she a good choice to be heading this all up? Um, well, she certainly. I mean, didn't you, you know, work with her in California uh, and stuff? Excuse me. Didn't you work with Nancy in California before she came on board? Um, personally, no. I, I know that she'd been uh, working very hard in LA to clean up uh, the air quality and, and also involved in the greening of the ports there. Yeah, uh, with climate work, but uh, um, I, I'd actually worked with uh, the head of now the head of NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. It was also uh, Dr. Jane Levchenko, who was also appointed by um, President Obama. And and when he was uh, when he was president-elect in Chicago, and she went to interview for the job, she talked to him about these two ocean commissions and. He asked her some good questions and then said, let's move forward with this. And yeah, that's, that's great. That's yeah, what's so, now happened. And uh, So now we have, it, um, you were saying, I interrupt you when when uh, the present executive order was coming out. Yeah, the, there's, there's been this series of public hearings. Thousands of people turned out around the country, and 80% of the comments, the public comments, were 
supportive of the need to uh, protect and restore our seas. And, and, and after the public comment period, we had a meeting in D.C. out of which uh, developed this Wear Blue Day, which just took place in January, January 13, around the country. And, and maybe Jim can talk about it. He certainly drew, drew on it and uh, drew a part of his uh, Sherman's Lagoon was, was some very funny takes on that. Yeah, I put sure. in Jim's illustration of uh, Finley and Claudia for his uh, bio picture. I hope he doesn't mind. Uh, your readers will have to look elsewhere to find out what you really look like. These are actually <laughs> the uh, yeah the crab and and the fish who who are the kind of our Smokey the Bear and Hoot the Owl. They appear in our our book Fifty Ways to Save the Ocean and mm-hmm. became uh, I'd say the visible leaders of Wear Blue Day. Jim. Sure. Yeah. So I think um, it 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 started. It was a very um, quick turnaround affair. And I think when was the meeting, David? In November. Yeah, November, late November. Late November. Um, and uh, we just, uh, um, you know, the interagency task force had just turned in the, their first uh, draft to uh, to the White House and about to turn in their second draft. And there's was going to be some turnaround time. And we also had the Copenhagen thing coming up in a, in a couple of weeks. So we had a giant um, distractor, not, you know, something that was going to suck all the press and energy uh, into, you know, another environmental story. So we had sort of a, um, you know, we had to jump around a lot of things, and we, it was too short of a turnaround to really um, do a big thing. I mean, we couldn't fill a stadium full of blue people or anything like that. We really had to do something a little bit more guerrilla style, um, which was, you know, in this day and age, entirely possible um, because of uh, new media and group sourcing and, and you know, flash crowds and all that stuff. And we went in that direction for a couple of reasons. We didn't have a lot of time, and we really didn't have time to pull together much of a budget. So there was a room of about 20 people. Um, what was the official uh, the official format or the official uh, title of that meeting, David? Um, you know, I don't even remember what we called. It was just sort of a, a uh, planning and... Uh and follow-through meeting after all these public hearings that the task force had held and sort of next right. steps. And, and the next step we chose was 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 to have a Wear Blue Day to visualize uh, our support for this process. Yeah, the meeting was titled, What Our Next Step's Going to Be? And, you know, and yeah. as Jim said, we have this issue of all the energy going to Copenhagen and how are we going to revigorate, you know, um, after Copenhagen. And so this is brilliant. Right, and then you know, there's just so many other big things moving through Capitol Hill and the White House right now with the with the health bill and um, you know other climate issues and um, uh, finance reform and so forth. So we really needed something different and punchy and quick and relatively low budget. So that's where we you know hit on this wear blue day uh, because everybody's got an item of blue clothing, um, and uh, it seemed like an easy thing, especially with new media and. Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff to pull crowds together kind of, you know, really quickly and, um, um, you know, to, to sort of just make this happen um, almost in an instant. And, uh, and it really was interesting that where we had our sort of planned uh, rallies and events in Cambridge and San Francisco and, you know, 75 people in fish costumes in blue in front of the White House or on the steps of City Hall in San Francisco or down with a, a funny-looking blue shark in uh, New Orleans on the waterfront, that for all of those, there were many more events that kind of emerged out of this 
social networking from uh, where the 300 uh, school students at the state capitol in Honolulu or, or where we're getting uh, images and photos sent in of, of gatherings at marine labs in Louisiana and California and, and in Canada and and uh, there were blue donut groups in Oregon. Yeah, and, and uh, blue donuts in Oregon and and school kids in Massachusetts and Colorado. So it, it really, you know, I wasn't convinced social networking, green drinks hadn't convinced me. The the idea of 20-somethings getting together to drink and hook up in bars didn't convince me you could really mobilize no. politically. No, the Ocean River Institute helped with the Cambridge Center for Cambridge Community Center in Massachusetts. And this is the local community center that's in need of more recognition. And uh, they really love the Sherman Lagoon posters of... Uh, Finley and uh, Claudia the Crab, and, and you know, then the, the students the day before, or two days before, started drawing up pictures of blue, uh, of ocean animals, and then uh, when their parents came to pick them up, they could all pose with photographs, and it really meant a lot to them that these images would be going to President Obama and his administration. Uh, it, it just kind of galvanized the community about, wow, they actually want to hear what we have to say about the ocean. So it was, it's such an easy idea. I mean, it's such a brilliant idea just to simply be blue, pull on something blue. So often, and it's particularly the, the carbon the carbon wars, you know, the, the Copenhagen talk has all been about parts per million and having to learn math and stuff. And it was so nice not to have to get into the, the reads of uh, details, but just, you know, think blue. How can you do to help the ocean? And tell the president to move forward with this fabulous task force. Right, and one of the things really impressed me, I saw this photo on the, and, and there's still a great photo gallery on the wearebluefororceans.org, and I went there, and there's this picture. Two years ago, Jim and I went, and, and one of the toughest crowds, we spoke to a couple of hundred uh, K through fourth graders in suburban <laughs> San Francisco, and after we spoke there about 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, they did this ocean mural. And when I looked at the Wear Blue Day, there's about 30 or 40 kids in blue standing in front of that same ocean mural in that same uh, yeah. elementary school. No, it's fabulous the way you got people together and stuff. Yeah, um, especially being able to um, enfranchise the kids because they're they're the ones that gonna that are gonna who are gonna inherit the ocean and um, to to develop a an event that gives them a voice and and just as loud a voice as as the adults in the crowd was a, a big part of this as well. And so I think we've really given, shown a lot of popular support at these public hearings with Wear Blue Day, um, shown our body surfing president that there is support for strong national ocean policy based on, on protecting, you know, the living resources of the ocean. And, and it's, it's pretty much up to him now. They've got a final report coming out in the next month. And sometime in March, uh, we're hoping he'll do an executive order to, to give us a new or really a first ocean policy for... Uh, you know, right now, uh, there's no ocean policy. There are 20 different federal agencies under 145 different laws, and, and it's fairly a chaotic, anarchic approach to, uh, um, to the ocean. As, as the uh, Fat Allen, the commandant of the Coast Guard, recently told me, it's, it's right now it's a first-come, first-serve. You know, whoever applies for that first license to do whatever activity in the ocean tends to get it, and that's not the way to... Uh, protect a public resource. No, we really need a management plan that, that is well-informed and informed by the users and by science and then coordinates you know, all the different silos of government so that there's some concerted effort. We'll be right back with more information on what you can do to save the ocean after this break. 
Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on How to Become a Host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Sports Channel. It's game time. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back to episode 15 on what you can do to help save the ocean. And my guests today are Sherman Lagoon cartoonist Jim Toomey, Seaweed Rebel and president of the Blue Frontier Campaign, David Helvarg, and from Ocean Champions, once again, it's executive director Mike Dunmeyer. And we've been talking about the the Wear Blue campaign that came out of uh, David Helvarg's conferences on Blue Visions. 
and have been supporting uh, President Obama's executive order for uh, a national ocean policy. And if people want to write to President Obama about their interest in the ocean, uh, they're welcome to join the campaign at the Ocean River Institute, oceanriver.org, www.oceanriver.org. Uh, there we've gathered, but we need them by Friday. Uh, we've got about 1,800 uh, comments from people across the country uh, about the importance of ocean, how ocean conservation is important to them. Uh, Mike, um, can you give us some context for this, uh, the broader context for, uh, context for President Obama's ocean initiative? Sure. So I guess, uh, you know, we, we can start by talking a little bit about, you know, why do you need this and, and, and generally what is this? And um, David touched on it. Right now you've got, uh, you know, dozens of competing uses uh, for ocean resources and, and the ocean uh, and, and all of these human uses have, have impacts. And right now, uh, there are 20 federal agencies and 145 different laws that govern how these uses take place and what we need to do. And a lot of these agencies uh, and laws are really at cross-purposes. So there's no overarching way to manage uh, our impacts to the ocean while still ensuring that we can protect jobs and continue to provide food and energy and, and things like that. Um, so a national ocean policy would, would really align the activities of these 20 different federal agencies and provide a consistent interpretation for how to, uh, how to use these laws under a mandate of, uh, of protect, maintain, and restore ocean health while also making sure that you, you know, look out for the economic and, and uh, 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 social needs for the uses of these oceans. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's the need for this national ocean policy, and then there's also discussion of a tool called marine spatial planning, which is really a way of, of just going and saying, look, you've got all of these different competing uses for the ocean. Uh, you know, you've got to have a, a, a structured, planned way of figuring out where to do what. So let's have a way of getting public input and using science and uh, uh, really taking a, a good multi-purpose view of how we do things rather than kind of sector by sector, issue by issue, the way that it's done today. Um, and we've got a lot of momentum uh, out of the current administration around an executive order for national ocean policy and for a framework for how you might do marine spatial planning. But these issues have been going on for really a long time now, starting in, in 2003, the, the Pew uh, Oceans Commission came out with a thorough report for how do you address all of these you know, very deep and problematic challenges facing the ocean. The U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy came out the next year, uh, and really both of them said very similar things about what we needed to do. And part of that was you're not going to be able to tackle these broad, uh, far-reaching issues until you start to have some consistency in how you govern ocean issues. Uh, and shortly thereafter, in the 109th Congress, Sam Farr introduced his Oceans 21 bill, which really uh, was, was, was it's a great bill in that it's very broad and, and touches on all of the recommendations from these two commissions around ocean governance and how we start to solve these problems. And at that time, Ocean Champions began working with Congressman Farr uh, and helped form a very broad coalition of ocean and environmental groups to, to try to push this legislation through. Uh, and we've had some movement on it. The challenge there is that uh, it is so broad uh, that there are a number of, of smaller groups that will you know, kind of feel that their, 
particular pet issue might be threatened, and it just basically creates a lot of stopping points in getting through the, the processes on Capitol Hill. And so last year, this broad coalition, and with Ocean Champions being a big part of it, started to look at, okay, we need to keep pushing this legislation, but we also need to look for intelligent ways to move individual pieces of it. And we got clear signals from the administration that they were interested in an executive order for a national ocean policy. And, uh, and then we saw in the June 12th memo from President Obama the creation of this interagency task force uh, that was charged with going out and uh, putting together a set of recommendations for a national ocean policy for how you might do marine spatial planning. They've hit their deadlines uh, for when we needed to, to get these recommendations out. There's been extensive opportunity for public comment. Uh, and now with both the National Ocean Policy and Marine Spatial Planning Framework out, it's actually this Friday is the end of the opportunity for public comment. And so one of the things, Rob, that you wanted to do is encourage everyone uh, to jump in before Friday and offer comments supporting the need for a National Ocean Policy so that you can get uh, a, a Protect, Restore, Maintain framework driving the activities of all the different groups that are engaged on, on ocean issues. Um, yeah, it's important to stress that this is not uh, super regulatory. It's more uh, consistency in how the oceans are governed, as you said, and that this is more of a framework than um, threatening any individual practices of the ocean, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. No new laws are created here. What it does is it creates a structure one, it creates a, a mandate to say, look, as you're doing these things to make sure that you've got economic issues covered and social issues covered, and you, you can fish and you, you can develop clean tech energy and there is some offshore drilling that needs to be covered. As you're doing all of these things, you need to do it under a preservation mandate. You need to look to the long term and make sure that we manage our ocean, ocean resources so that they will be around uh, for our kids and our grandkids and, and so on. Um, so it really provides a, a guidance and then a framework for all of these competing interests to come together and meet and discuss and figure out a way to do it uh, in a sustainable way going forward. Um, but uh, the, the, the executive order that we hope to get very soon after this public comment period ends isn't the end. Uh, what that does is it provides a very strong leadership signal to Congress to actually go now and look at legislation like Oceans 21 and begin to codify these things. Because an executive order is great and will do these things, but the risk is that the next administration that comes in, they can choose to overturn that executive order. So, so the work becomes then uh, one of codifying in law these great things that are being done, hopefully through this executive order, so that you've got some, some consistency and longevity to how ocean issues will be managed uh, with that preservation view going forward. So what are some of the players that are going to help bring this about in Washington? Well, you know, first we need the, the clear signal from the president, and uh, then we've already gotten indications from uh, congressional leaders that when this executive order comes out, they want to seize on that momentum and that leadership signal and begin to do some things on the Hill you know, through, uh, through congressional processes to codify them. Um, one of the things that we see discussed is, is, there, is uh, there is energy around codifying NOAA and strengthening and, and, and uh, clarifying the NOAA mission uh, around managing our oceans. Uh, so that would be a great thing to come from this. And then, we're, like I say, we're having conversations fairly broadly in both the Senate and the House 
uh, uh, with some of the leaders of the key committees and subcommittees to see what they want to do to seize upon this. And we have heard uh, from some of our champions that they are very enthusiastic about a broad ocean agenda in the last year of the 111th Congress. Wow. You're also taking a more incremental approach of uh, promoting uh, red tide legislation and harmful algal bloom stuff. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things... Red zones, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's important to look at these, these kind of game-changing things that take many years, but Ocean Champions is also very pragmatic and, and tactical, and we will meet every year with the, the heads of the key committees and understand what is on their agenda, what do they want to move, because those are the things that have the best chance, and then figure out what we can do to support those pieces of the agenda that are really helpful for oceans. And uh, passing uh, the, the, the bill to prevent and control toxic algae uh, is still a big big one for us. It is out of committee in both the Senate and the House. Uh, we believe that it is going to be passed on the suspension calendar in the House soon, uh, if we get a little luck. And then the Senate, of course, is a challenge for everyone these days, since you need 60 votes to get stuff done. And you know, certain folks from Oklahoma will put a, will put a hold on, on anything uh, that, that tries to come through that represents kind of new legislation. Uh, but we do have uh, very strong support at the committee chair level in the Senate as well and believe that we can get this harmful algal bloom bill passed this year. Thank you. It's, it, you know, it's very complex, all the different elements, and it is so helpful that, uh, that Jim Toomey has been doing, this, doing the Sherman Lagoon cartoon strip to help us meet first and get to know some of the players and the complexity of these ocean issues. Uh, well, you know. I also think it's great. This I'm, I'm all for codifying because the cod really got overfished in the 90s. On that note, we'll be back for more uh, of Sherman Lagoons, of Sherman the Shark, and, and Hawthorne the Hermit Crab, and Jim Toomey, and David Helvarg, and Mike Dunmire after this break. At the Green Talk Network, our experts want to hear your voice. Do you have a question or comment for our hosts? Call us toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization 
organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on The Voice America business channel get ready for a show that breaks ground on the subject of women in motorsports and what it takes to dream believe achieve gas and go with alio is all about the movement that is happening lightning fast in women's racing you'll get a wide array of perspectives from the drivers to the fans as well as what it takes to be a role model in a male-dominated sport join your host professional driver ali owens for Gas and Go with Alio, Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with... Jim Toomey, the cartoonist of uh, Sherman's Lagoon, and David Helvard from Blue Frontiers, and Mike Dunmire, Ocean Champions. Uh, David, you were going to tell us a bit about um, why do we need uh, spatial planning in our ocean waters, and, and what are some good examples? Sure. Well, one, one recent and very good example is, is uh, the Secretary of Commerce, uh, Gary Locke, who's NOAA, the lead civilian agency on the oceans, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, is within the Department of Commerce, and how it got sunk there is a whole other story. But recently, they they took a very good uh, approach with the uh, melting Arctic, which is they declared that 250,000 square miles of uh, U.S. ocean north of the Bering Sea, emerging ocean where the ice is melting, will be off-limits to commercial fishing until we better understand what's happening in this in this rapidly changing ecosystem. And, and this was the decision he took that had the support of Alaska's commercial fishermen as well as environmentalists, uh, taking the precautionary principle, which is don't take an action until you understand its impacts. Unfortunately, with the stovepiped approach of different agencies uh, in, in the federal government right now, the Mineral Management Service of uh, Department of Interior is continuing to uh, lease oil and gas permits in these same endangered waters. You know, they're, they're passing out permits like it's Dick Cheney's birthday, even as, as its, its sister agency is taking the precautionary approach. And, and so if you have marine spatial planning, you're going to have a common approach to uh, common waters instead of having these, these oppositional approaches. And, and the way that, that that kind of planning can work out to benefit uh, all users, uh, a good example is, is off in New England, where the uh, after the science was done, to look at, at right whales who are endangered um, 
used to be they were considered the right whale to harpoon. In modern times, it's ship strikes, commercial ships uh, striking them that are a major cause of mortality for the last hundreds. And after their science was uh, was really studied where they they tend to uh, breed and feed. And their feeding grounds off of Boston, the Coast Guard discovered by moving the shipping lanes 10 miles to the north, uh, 90% of the collisions could be avoided. That's, you know, that's kind of three-dimensional uh, approach. If you can integrate all the different agencies and look at, at the best uses of, of common ocean waters, that's the approach to sort of take urban planning into the water column and use our best available science and our societal values to make decisions that will protect not just the uh, jobs and, and users, but organize the uses in ways that protect the long-term viability of, of the living systems that we all depend on. Absolutely. That's a remarkable story about uh, the right whales off of, uh, off of Provincetown. And Episode 7 of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, I interview, it's the, the title of the program is Right Whale, Wrong Channel. And uh, you can hear more on iTunes uh, or at, at this station here um, about the, the uh, principles involved in that uh, remarkable decision where they actually moved the shipping lane for the sake of whales, and the whole Coast Guard picked up on it. I mean, the shipping picked up on it. And they also picked up on getting... Uh, uh, they had uh, buoys set out to listen to it when the right whales were around, and when they were around, Cornell would say, yep, that's the right whale song. And the boat captains got all the trans knitting machine so they could hear about this voluntarily because they didn't like coming into Boston Harbor with a whale draped over the bow. So they were very quick to pick up on that. Jim, um, I forgot we were going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, a couple of things. We, oh, yes, the, go ahead. To go back to the thinning series, and, and, it, and it's a little bit like the, uh, the Wear Blue Day effort, which is, uh, you know, enfranchising, empowering the everyday people person and um, uh, especially children, but in the middle of that finning series, the Sherman's Lagoon shark finning series, I, I had a Sunday strip that compelled readers to uh, draw their own shark and then mail this into the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service um, with a short note that just said, um, we do care about sharks and we do care about, um, you know, we, we do consider finning a, a cruel practice and we want to do something about it. And the, the key thing there is that... Um, you know, despite all the cynicism out there, democracy does work. I've, I've been on Capitol Hill. We've all been, David and, and Mike. And, and what we hear from, from those folks is, you know, the, that's what the voters want. That's what people want. And if, it's, it's just important to get people to express their wants. And I think a lot of people are, think they, they have better things to do or they're cynical and they think it's only run by lobbyists or whatever. But it really does work. Democracy works. If you get out there and express express your wants, you express your needs, your desires, and you, 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 you say to the right people that the ocean does matter. They actually do listen. And it does make a difference in the long run. But we so do need you not... coming up with good ideas how we do that. I mean, that's, you know, it, yes, it works, but, um, you know, we, we need the, the creativity of, yeah, draw a shark, here's the address, mail it to this person. And I, I've talked to politicians, and they love hearing from the constituents or any constituents. But it's important that we continue to find creative ways to make people sit up and realize that we do care and, and not fall for this bit about, well, people don't care because people don't know how to communicate. And uh, sure. so it's just great the way you've got people just putting on a shirt is a statement on January 13th, uh, cutting out a shark, uh, drawing a shark and sending it, 
And now, before Friday, there's an opportunity to write to uh, Council for Environmental Quality Chair Nancy Sutley and also President Obama is going to be getting this from uh, the CEQ, uh, your concerns about the ocean. So if you'd like to uh, write a note about what means what the ocean means to you, uh, please visit the oceanriver.org uh, website and uh, follow the uh, link-ups, and we are going to be assembling uh, all of those comments. Uh, not only will they be done given electronically, but they will be assembled into a publication. We organize them by town and state so that different politicians can see who's commenting from where, and it it's becomes a lasting document of testimonials from uh, people like you and me uh, who care about the oceans. Um, and uh, Rob, you know, uh, Jim is spot on when when uh, thank you, when congressmen hear from <laughs> hear from their voters that that does influence them. And you know, a lot of times when we'll be talking uh, to our champions on the hill, we'll, we'll give them our views on an issue, and and they will express that they also have similar views. They would like to do this thing that we're talking about to help the oceans. And what they'll say is, help me generate support amongst my voters because they need to pay attention to what their constituency is telling them. So they need to hear from the people in our districts that, that care. And uh, as a community, we do need to get better about this. And then there's, uh, if I can throw out there too, there's a, there's a carrot and a stick view on this as well. And Ocean Champions uh, every year endorses and supports the folks that we think are doing the best things for the ocean. And we'll certainly call out the people that are doing bad things for the ocean. And people need to vote their issue. Uh, nobody lives in the ocean, so the people that really care about it and depend upon it and have commercial and passionate connections to it need to vote that way as well. Yeah, I mean, we did, uh, Jim illustrated a book I wrote, um, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, which is, you know, different things. We get so much from the ocean in terms of, you know, recreation, transportation, trade, protein, energy, all these things that we want to give something back. And, and 49 out of the 50 ways is, uh, Vote for those who protect the coast, and uh, like Mike said, carrot and stick. Vote against those who don't. And, and number fifty, be a seaweed rebel, really means taking that grassroots approach. We've identified over two thousand groups working on coastal and ocean protection, and and they've been a part of this effort to get the president to uh, act. And after the president acts, we have to really make it make it the law of the land. And uh, I think we can do it. And I think we can do it from the bottom up. Yeah, and speaking up. Can you, you only get to vote once an election cycle, but speaking up is heard because that's an indication of uh, your interest. And politicians, as Mike was saying, they, they count comments. And they also, you know, well-chosen words will resonate and carry much further than, you know, 27,000 comments on this or something. They get pretty immune to the, the numbers, but uh, just a few chosen words makes such a difference. And, and models that work, I mean, you know... This is federal action, but it's going to work from the bottom up. The best example of marine spatial planning I know of today is is in, in Port Orford, Oregon, where five fishing families realized they were losing the resource that they depend on. And, That's right. They, well, we got to go. They work from the watershed out to, to the ocean. Um, I want to thank David Helbard, Jim Toomey, and Mike Dunmire for being with us today. Thanks, Rob. Thank, thank you. you. Bye.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.